and welcome to the Boys in Red and White podcast. My name is Tom Dow and I'm joined by my best friend Andre Grayson. How are you? I'm good, thank you Mr Dow. How are you? Very well, very well. A uh, bit of a come down from last weekend where we were talking about the uh, the cup final but excited to talk all things Arsenal nonetheless. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. It's amazing. We recorded on Tuesday, there was some news on Wednesday that rendered quite a lot of what I said Tuesday redundant. <laughs> Absolutely, and we'll get on to that very, very shortly. Uh, before we get too stuck into anything too heavy, it's time for our weekly commentary quiz. Each week we both select a piece of commentary from an Arsenal goal and read them to each other without any context or emotion for the other to guess. This week we have my goal first, so your commentary for this week is Ozil 2, it's splendid from Arsenal. Oh, that's uh, 3-0 at home to Man U. Correct. Oh, oh, I love that goal. That was that was one of the first times... Actually, I might be wrong. There's been a few games at the Emirates that have just exploded with goals against bigger teams. So they, we, had, we had a similar half against Liverpool. And I think this was in quite close succession. Um, we started like a house on fire. Yeah, I think the Liverpool game was the made the year before, and I think when we when we did the same to Chelsea, it was a year after, wasn't it? Yes, one a year, and they are electric. For all the critique of what the atmosphere is like, those games against the bigger clubs, when the goals are going in back to back to back, it's majestic. It was one of my favourite things actually, and that game was Walcott up front, and we thought we had the re-emergence of something really special. We, we were wrong. But it was exciting. We did. Uh, and I think I've said to you before that that is genuinely one of my favourite ever Arsenal goals. And it's because every element of that goal is absolutely perfect. The way that Cazorla breaks the Manchester United press and then whips the ball into the feet of Alexis Sanchez. The delightful flick from Sanchez to Meza Ozil. The typically perfectly timed pass from uh, into the path of the on-rushing Walcott. Some really impressive hold-up play by Theo to to draw the defenders in and delay the pass just long enough to pick out Ozil on the edge of the box. And then the finish is so good into the bottom left-hand corner. And it's one of those goals where the goalkeeper doesn't even move. And I absolutely love goals like that. Mm. And what else I think is very important about that goal is that that goal and that game and that season summed up Mesut Ozil at his peak. And when he was put into a team set up to bring out the best in him, he was good. And he was bloody good at times. <laughs> he really was. Do you know, one of our most accomplished finishers, I always felt. Rarely missed. He rarely missed. And that that finish, I, it would have been very easy to just sort of put your foot through it from that sort of distance. But it's such a calm and composed finish into the bottom corner that it looks really simple. It looks like something when you see on TV, you think, oh, that, that's not that hard. I could do that. Mm. But to do that in that sort of pressure and make it look that easy, there's, I don't think there's that many players that can do that. Agreed, agreed. That's a great goal. He's put me in a good mood. And now Walcott, who can run away from them. Blint trying to buy him a bit of time. Ozil, two! It's splendid from Arsenal and Manchester United in a real mess at the moment. Okay, are you ready? I am ready. Here they come again. It's Reyes. Before I even answer, this is one of my favourite games I've ever been at. So that is, of course, the fourth goal in the 5-3 against Middlesbrough, which equalled the unbeaten record set by Nottingham Forest. And that was a goal, obviously, by Jose Antonio Reyes. Absolutely right. Uh, And you knew. You know, I didn't need to validate that for you, did I? (laughs) No, it, it was one of those games that I will always remember because... 
as I say, the last couple of seasons at Highbury, I, I attended almost almost every home game because my dad got in with someone who had access to tickets. So I was very fortunate that I got to see Highbury so often. And that was single-handedly the game that I will always remember uh, alongside the last game at Highbury because 3-1 down, we felt like we were completely out of it. To get the goal back so quickly through Bergkamp and then we scored twice within a minute through Pires and then, and then Reyes. And the atmosphere was absolutely phenomenal. I was sat in the East Stand lower, uh, right at the back of the stand, so I could barely even see. But... It was it was brilliant, absolutely brilliant day, and what a goal! Those two selections we've done there are absolutely brilliant. <laughs> they are, they are. I have to say, so my memory of this, I'm watching in Spain, and I'm pretty sure I'm at home, and I have the commentary, and it's always interesting, isn't it? Because when you experience that commentary, it does heighten it for you. When you have a commentator who feels it how you feel it, and that Reyes goal and just that moment because it was again it was actually similar to the example you've pulled out that it was the second goal in a quick oh no there wasn't a quick fire three that was the last of the three the Reyes one but they happened in such quick succession it showed what a team we were the next line of the commentary was stand up for the champions probably the last time we heard that as well I love that as well and they uh because I, I've, I've got a feeling that game was also on Prem, uh, Prem Plus. So there's a commentary, which is Martin Tyler, and there's also commentary from somewhere else. And the alternative commentary that I'm talking about um, had the line, you wonder why Arsenal were champions, that's why Arsenal were champions. Yes. I mean, I know we've got a lot of podcasts to talk about. How we didn't win the league that season is a sin. But nevertheless, it gave us that great moment. It did, it did. And it was only three days later that we broke the unbeaten record uh, with a 3-0 win at home to Blackburn. Mm. A game in which Jermaine Pennant started. There you go. Here they come again. It's Reyes! Stand up for the champions! Well, you can talk all you like about the football, and that's fantastic. But what about the character? What about the class? All right, Middlesbrough, culpable. Give the ball away. And then Arsenal ripped into them again. OK, so moving on from that, very, very nice that we both got those uh, those answers correct. Uh, we're going to talk about what came out of the club last Wednesday. And this is certainly the biggest news that's come out of the club in the last week. And that was the statement that was issued on the website regarding the proposal of 55 redundancies within the club. Uh, this was met with derision from both Arsenal supporters and the media, which I think is somewhat caused by the lack of, cl- of clarity in the statement. Naturally, because of the required 30-day consultation period, the specifics cannot be given as to which jobs are under threat, with the notable exception to the, the scouting department, which we've heard so much about. Uh, this has meant that everyone is attempted to join up the dots, which ultimately helps nobody. So that's kind of the only place we can start with the podcast this week. I'll go through sort of my spectrum of emotions. My first was fury. Fury with the messaging itself. We're in a very strange world right now we've got a pandemic going we're still in lockdown there's no supporters life isn't the same as we know it there are thousands maybe even tens of thousands of companies globally going through redundancies okay I don't think that news in itself is what shocked me it was the timing and the wording and also 
And of course, you know, the bit that hurts me and the bit that gives me such cause for concern, but again, we are speculating, is the fact the players took a pay cut so this wouldn't happen and it's happened. And that's the bit that alarms me. I have also gone a bit further now and I think I've got round to, well, and again, I sort of want to talk through all of this. I don't know whether I've now got round to, well, it's one of those things. How long do we give this regime before we judge them? And is could this decision be a masterstroke? Who knows? It's so hard to judge. So that was sort of my arc of emotions. How about for you? My arc was very similar. Uh, initially, when I read that statement and when you text me to say we're a disgrace, aren't we? <laughs> I completely agreed at the time. And... As you, I've sort of done some background reading and I've thought about the process a little bit more. And I think what we forget as supporters is that we, as much as we don't like to admit it, football clubs are still businesses and redundancies happen in businesses and strategies change all the time. Now, I think you're absolutely right that the timing of the statement was really, really poor. Um, In a time that everyone's struggling, it was was a really bizarre time for them to do that. Having said that, I think Arsenal have been quite transparent throughout the whole process of um, the pandemic and have issued a number of statements uh, monthly to keep fans up to date with what's going on. Now, I think the, the major sticking point with all of that is that We've got an owner who is worth somewhere in the billion uh, in the region of eight billion pounds, uh, which is where much of the criticism is, is coming from. But I think what we're seeing is Arsenal are still a self-sufficient club. We are fine. We are not really financed by our owner. We are operating in. We spend what we can, and that's where you kind of have to draw a line between what the club are doing and what owner we actually have. The owner could easily come in and say, "Okay, well, we'll save those jobs because it's." not going to cost me that much money in the grand scheme of things. But I think what we're seeing is Arsenal are trying to change direction slightly. And I think they're using this opportunity within the pandemic to do so. The other argument which I've seen all over social media, which is frustrating me, is people saying that it's a disgrace and the media saying this, that we're on the verge of handing big contracts to uh, Aubameyang and to William, which... I, I just that argument makes no sense to me because without a competitive team, Arsenal have nothing as a brand. So mm. I think that's a totally separate argument. Arsenal have to continue to invest in their first team squad, otherwise there is no club. So the two arguments don't, in my opinion, don't really go hand in hand. Yeah, they absolutely don't correlate. There's just a couple of things. Firstly, if you delve into the, the cronky part of what you were talking about, they haven't laid anyone off in any of their other franchises. So we do have to wonder whether this decision is made by the UK executives. And you would assume the fact that Raoul and Vinay signed it off. You you know, you have to assume that they have run the numbers and made this decision. The thing that hurt me was the stupidity. And it's again, this board does it time and time again. How stupid do they think we are? Why do they think that those job cuts make us more competitive on the pitch? It makes no sense. Anyone, you know. Who's putting that out there? This is what frustrates me so much with this club. We used to do everything and operate at a really high class level. And and, and it was very hard to level criticism at how we did things. But the way we announced this and then the way you sort of make a mockery of people's intelligence that they can't work out that even if someone was on 50 grand a year as an average, which is a very high base, you know, you're only saving, what, 2.75 million? It's nothing. 
It's, it's nothing for a football club. Admittedly, we are going through a time where we do need to claw back. Um, and they could have just said that. But I hated that they made it about the playing staff and to make us more competitive. I agree. I think that part of the statement was ridiculous because they're not laying off people of, of that, that high salary that's going to really have that much of an impact. So I don't really know why they went down that route. If they said day-to-day costs and day-to-day functionings is where we're having to save money, then I think you'd get a completely separate reaction from the media and from fans. Mm. But the fact that they have made it about the players, like you've said, kind of undermines everyone and everything. Well, I wanted to actually ask you something that's sort of my angle. Is, is this where social media is a blessing and a curse? What I mean by this is that statement comes out. I read it on Twitter. I have no doubt some people read it through other mediums. But has a club in the past, if you go back 20, 30 years before this existed, if they had went through redundancies, they wouldn't have to necessarily announce it in this way and take the immediate heat. That was my only thing is, I thought after the FA Cup final, the content that came out, I mean, social media is the best thing ever. When this came out and you see everyone's reaction and you just think, hang on, guys, calm down. We do not know the ins and outs of this club. Ins and outs. Oh, my goodness. Ins and outs of the club. You know, I know you're a member of the AST and of course they do forensic analysis. But the truth is, we don't know. We don't know why they've done it and we're never going to know. We'll only ever really be able to judge this in a couple of years. But that's where I go. My frustration is with did what used to happen. How did they announce this years ago? Because surely they don't have to didn't have to justify themselves to the fans then. I think years ago when social media was was not a thing, I think life probably was a lot easier for football clubs because one, they wouldn't need to focus on creating this brand and this atmosphere around the club. But secondly, they could they could keep things in-house quite comfortably. And now it's very, very difficult for them to keep anything in-house. So I, I agree with that statement at the start. It is a blessing having social media because for certain things like after the cup final, it's fantastic because you get a real insight into what goes on within the club. But for things like this, it's it's really, really unhealthy. And you end up having a load of people... I'd include myself into that statement, who don't know what's going on, making opinions and joining the dots together, when in reality, I don't have a clue about the ins and outs of it. I'm not a business person. I'm a supporter. So it's very difficult for people like me to actually have uh, an opinion on the matter. I think the difference between myself and some other people is that I accept that as my role. I accept that as my position as a supporter. But there's a lot of people, if you read on Twitter, who just think they know better than everyone else and they and they know better than the executives within the club and they seem to believe that they know the ins and outs of what's what's going on so from a club perspective i think it's very 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 difficult and i'm sure 90 percent of the time people at the club just avoid social media like the plague well you'd have to you'd have to i was just wondering in a more successful era did we i mean i don't know you could look it up maybe you can't maybe you'll never know in a more successful era, did we do something like this or even prior to that that changed things forever that helped us? You know, at this moment in time, we cannot know whether this was brilliant. And when we go on to things like transfers, you know, it's much the same thing. This could be a masterstroke, as could the player pay cuts. It could reset everything. It could give us extra finances. It could be, you know, to, to steal sort of Raoul's thunder, um, you know, or to, well, to, to quote him, if you like outsmarting the market you know is this a form of it 
that getting ahead, we are the first club. We're still the only club that did the cuts. We're the first club that's properly announced redundancies. Are we saving more money by doing that now? Or are we just looking stupid? Um, it's really hard to tell. And in fact, sadly, I mean, we're talking about this sort of live in the moment. Well, perhaps with a week of, of, of time to sort of really think it through. But it's impossible to know. We cannot know. Uh, I completely agree with everything you're saying. Uh, and I don't think, like you say, we're going to know until a lot further down the line whether this was a successful manoeuvre, so to speak. What I do think is likely is that other clubs will follow suit at some point. Uh, having said that, we said that was the same about we thought most clubs would have to have players taking reduction in wages and that didn't really happen as nationwide as maybe we thought it would. What I did want to just comment on quickly, obviously what we the only details we've had about what roles have actually been made redundant, we've heard lots about the scouting network being dissolved. And this is what makes me think that this is perhaps a strategy as opposed to something that's maybe forced. Mm -hmm. And I don't think it's unfair to say that we are due a shake-up in this area because I think we've operated in a very similar way for a number of years now. I think when Sven Mislintat was at the club, he said that our scouting department was over-bloated. So there were too many, too many scouts operating with not a clear strategy in what we wanted to do. I don't necessarily like the idea of the, the club dissolving to this extent um, that's being rumoured because I, I think there's a something to be said for having a combination of a scouting network and relying on these relationships with, with agents. But maybe this is just where football is heading. Maybe this is the future of, of player recruitment. Our recruitment of players over recent years has been fairly appalling with a, with a few noticeable exceptions. So I think something did need to change to try and make Arsenal competitive again. And we cannot compete with the the big clubs in terms of uh, finances. So we need to find another way of doing that. And maybe, maybe that is about getting in with the right people and making sure that we get first dibs on certain players. It could be. It could be. I think it's hugely risky. But I think we're at a point in our our club's history where we're going to have to take a big risk. I don't love that we're going with Kia, or it seems like it, and we're getting his players. The only counter to that is that we did get Tierney. We did get Pepe. They're not his clients. We are still finding, and we are still being linked with those players um, you know, some of the, you know, take Cedric Suarez. For me, he is the anomaly. I could see why we signed David Luiz. If we get Willian or whatever, uh, you know, I can see why we're getting him. I couldn't make sense of Suarez unless Maitland-Niles is going and he's a, a replacement or Hector's going and he's a, a ready-made replacement. It works to have both. The biggest concern is that never before has football been as data heavy as it is now. There's never been more statistical analysis on players. There's never been more metrics by which football players are judged. So you sort of believe in the fact we own a company, Stat DNA. You do wonder whether that, that the combination of the two could be what sees us get through the next few years. But I think we're making these decisions with the next two years in mind. I think this is really short-term thinking. I think there could be a medium and long-term strategy. And that's why I'm a little bit more comfortable with it because I think short-termism is never a good thing. Didn't work when we went with Mkhitaryan and Aubameyang and what have you and, and that sort of failure that happened there. But, you know, if we can get a short-term improvement quickly and we show Arteta we're believing in him there's a chance this could work 
Um, the scouting, I mean, I was reading the article by The Athletic, and I have to say, I hadn't heard of any of the scouts um, other than Kajigao and Brian McDermott. And like, I'm pretty in deep with how much I know Arsenal. Um, <laughs> I didn't know any of them. So what does that tell you? I mean, it, you can't get that angry at losing people that you have to be pretty in deep to understand and know a lot of these people. Absolutely. And I think probably the, the last point to probably be made about this is people have gone one of two ways when looking at redundancies. One, they've gone to the point of assuming that we're letting go people who work in the armory or, or, or another club shop. So that's incorrect. And then the other way people have gone is assuming that the people that are being made redundant, so these scouts, are on astronomical wages, which I don't think is probably the case either. I'm sure they are fairly well paid, but I don't think we're talking, unless you're the head scout, I'm sure that the wages are reasonably modest for what for what reputation they have. So I think there's probably a middle ground to be found between those two arguments. Yeah, I think that's I think that's reasonable. I think that's reasonable. I, I think there's there's not really too much more to add because well, I have one question for you really is and this may also follow up after we talk transfers. How long do you give it before you judge this decision? When when would you say? Do you remember that redund those redundancies and and the lockdown? Hopefully, we're saying that. You know, how long do you give it, Tom? I think it's going to be very, very difficult to judge the current regime under any regard for the next two or three years because I think this is going to have such a knock-on effect, not just this redundancy, but the whole pandemic is going to have such a knock-on effect for all businesses and football clubs are no different. So I can't see until two, three years down the line things actually levelling out again. Um what will be interesting is the transfer window coming up. I know we've said that those are kind of two separate things, but they do have an overlapping area. So I think it'll be very interesting to see what happens happens with that uh, across all clubs, not just Arsenal. And then, and only then, after two, three years, can we actually see what what actually happened during this period but I think it's incredibly difficult to judge this regime we've said it before when we were comparing them to the previous regime and said that what the current lot were doing was correcting the messes of the of the previous lot unfortunately we're not going to be able to really see if those changes that they made initially are going to be successful because this is overridden everything mm, yeah I agree. I agree. I, I'm I'm in the mindset of three years. I give them three years from now. So I guess what season 22, 23 is when we'll revert back to this and say, yes, it was good or no, it was bad. Yeah, right. Let me just get my diary out and I'll put the uh, <laughs> podcast for that day three years from now. <laughs> Looking forward to it already. Um, yeah, but in all seriousness, in all seriousness, I don't know. I've gone full circle. Obviously, I feel terrible for the people that have lost their jobs, as, as as so many others have. You know, we make presumptions that they probably were Arsenal people and that would be your dream job and it's gone. I think my one final point is that it's very unlikely we're going to have a full Emirates Stadium next season at any point. You know, maybe towards the end. And there's a lot of people that go into sort of match day staff that you just cannot look after. Look, Again, you can, you can, of course you can. There are ways, you can do it in, there's many ways to skin this particular cat. Tottenham have taken out a massive loan. 
loads of other clubs have taken out other loans to, to, to sort of cover this period. We've gone down the redundancy route, you know, and it's just to quote Wenger, sort of judge me in May, but in 22, 23. <laughs> yeah, I think that's a, a lovely point to, uh, to end that section on. Okay, so for the next section, what we are going to do is have a quick look at some of the transfer rumours for both incoming and outgoing signings, which I think is always it's always a really interesting thing. But right now, in what we think is going to be quite challenging times for the club to recruit uh, and potentially a challenging time to get certain players out of the club as well, it'll be really interesting to sort of get each other's perspectives on different signings both leaving and arriving so the first one we're going to talk about and there's a fair chance that by the time that this podcast is released this person will probably be an Arsenal player so the first one we're going to be talking about is William who looks set to arrive from Chelsea on a free transfer but before we talk about him there's one thing that I've really really wanted to address because it's, it's frustrated me in the last couple of days and it's our fan base as a whole when anything happens. And we kind of touched on it in the previous section. But I'm so sick of the negativity that swamps social media when we do any kind of signing. William, in my eyes, looks like someone who would improve our squad. I think he's a, a, a good player. And I've seen people say, oh, oh yeah, he has good games and he has bad games. Well, unless you're Ronaldo Messi, most people have that, that sort of style. They play some good games, some bad games. It's just how football is. And it's frustrating me. And I really miss the days when Arsenal made a signing and everyone was just happy and supportive. He makes our squad better, regardless of his age. I've seen people criticising the salary. Now, I don't know about you, Andre, but I've seen it reported that we're going to pay between 100 and 200,000. So in reality, no one knows what wage he's going to be on. And if Mikel Arteta fancies him, then that's good enough for me. The whole three-year contract thing maybe isn't ideal, but it ensures that we can get a good player in without the outlay of a transfer fee. That's kind of my stance on William. Yeah, brilliantly put. I mean, it's hard to disagree at all with anything you've said. I'd just like to take it a bit further. So there's there's a couple of things here. One of the things I don't like, and I think it's different with William compared to other Chelsea castaways we may have got, is that I don't think they wanted to lose him. And I think the fact we offered a three years as opposed to two is what's got us the player, um, as well as, you know, <clears throat> the agent. Um, but one of the things I think is interesting, I was looking at his age profile, because his age is talked about over and over again. And again, if we're offering him a three-year contract, that he's 32 now, 35, that's quite old for a winger. But just had some uh, sort of assorted statistics and ages for you. Um, so one of the first players that came up in my mind was Zlatan at 38. He's still doing it. He doesn't move in the same way anymore. I think we've started to see a shift, by the way, and I think it's a testament to sports science. Players are lasting longer at a higher quality than I think ever before. And I think this is the evolution of sports science. Like I said, you know, unless you get a career ending in an injury, um, 
you know, Willian's been fairly injury free, but then he's joining Arsenal. So, you know, <laughs> he, kn- he knows what he's got coming. But Ronaldo at 35 was the second top scorer in Serie A. Lewandowski is 31. Benzema, 32, had one of his best ever seasons. Cavani is still banging them in. He's 33. Um, Thomas Muller thir- is 30, but he's been absolutely crucial for Bayern Munich. Um, even someone like João Moutinho has played every week for Wolves and been absolutely top draw for them. He's 33. Uh, Marco Royce, admittedly, injury problems, 31. You know, 32 is not as old as it was anymore. I do think we've shifted towards it. If we get one good season out of William and then one part-time season, it's a good deal. This season, he was, he was, I think he was Chelsea's top assister. And whenever I watch them play, I've always, I've thought he's a great player for ages. Really top player. You can't really tackle him. He beats a man. He is better than any winger we have in our squad, except Nicola Pepe. So we're getting our second best winger comfortably. Takes a great set piece. You know, what's not to like about this deal? I I don't get it. I don't get the sort of hyperbole around it. I think it's a great deal. I think it's one of the examples of uh, of something coming together. Look, am I worried about a sell-on fee? No, I've got over that. You know, we've lost Ramsey on a free. We've lost Sanchez on a free. Sell-on values, we need someone immediately who improves the squad. And he definitely does that. I think fans need to stop thinking of Arsenal as their own piggy bank because, okay, I've got a rough idea and a rough understanding of the sort of figures that are involved at Arsenal, but ultimately I don't know anything. Mm. And I go back to what I said before. I'm a supporter. That's what I do. I go to games I support. And for me... Like you said, I think it's a no-brainer deal. And even if we we get two years out of him and then the final year is just wishy-washy, then you think, okay, well, we paid that extra year to make sure that we got him out of Chelsea. I think that's worth it. If, if he gives us, let's say, half of his deal, he, he gives us a, a good service. So a year and a half, maybe. I, I think that's worth it. And personally, I've always liked him. I think he's a good player. The last seven seasons where he's been at Chelsea, he's played over 40 games in every single season. So he's not he's not an injury-prone player. Okay, as you get older, injuries become a little bit, a little bit more often. But he's obviously someone that looks after himself in a very similar way to uh, Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang. And I don't see any problem with it. I can't believe I reeled off that list and didn't mention Aubameyang. I apologise. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but that's why I'm also comfortable with that contract with the, for Aubameyang as well. And, and just to add to that, you know, I don't think he plays 40 games for us next season either. I think he plays 30, 20. He plays a lot off the bench. You know, I don't think we've bought him to start every week. Uh, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm wrong. But I just don't. It's, next season, more than any other, I think is going to be a squad game. I know they've um, scrapped the five sub rule, which I think is great, but we're going to need impact subs. When you look at our bench at the end of this season, you go, wow, if we fall behind here, it's over. Uh, You know, we've got nothing. And even if he's an option on the bench for a lot of games, he's better than bringing off an untried and untested Eddie Nketiah and uh, Reese Nelson. Absolutely. So moving on to the next player that we've been heavily linked with. It is Thomas Partey of Atletico Madrid. So, Andre, if you'd like to kick us off on that one. So, I remember watching Thomas Partey um, go to right-back against us in a Europa League semi-final against Atletico Madrid from centre midfield after Vrasalico got sent off 
in the fifth minute or something. And he was unbelievable. He was an absolute monster at right back. You couldn't, couldn't do anything with him. When I look at our midfield and I picture Thomas Party in it, you know, of course I'm going to say this. It, it It's party time. I would love this player. <laughs> I've read that in so many places. I don't know why that made me laugh so much, but it really did. <laughs> For me, I want a great centre midfielder who does a bit of everything, breaks it up, progressive pass, huge stamina, physical. He is everything we need. I think he's a ready-made Premier League player. And I think he, <laughs> I mean, to say what he does from, from the centre of our park in comparison to what we have... There's no comparison. Anyone who's been drilled uh, to play in a defensive midfield by Simeone gets my vote. I think right age profile. Again, look, no say, no. There's probably no resale value, but if we can make this happen, I think it's one we absolutely need to make happen. Um, what do you What do you think? Uh, he's a player I'd love at Arsenal for the exactly same reasons that, that you've said. Now. What's frustrating is because he is still in the Champions League with Atletico, we're going to have to wait to find out what happens with this one. But what has been quite clear is that there's obviously lots of rumblings going on in the press. Usually that's been leaked by someone, whether it's his agent or whether it's Arsenal or whether it's Atletico trying to sort out a contract or something. There's got to be a reason why there's so much noise about this one. And we've been linked with him and Atletico have been linked with Lacazette Guendouzi and also today Lucas Torreira Mm. and I keep hearing about how they just want straight money well if they want one of our players just (laughs) you tell us who you want if it's if it's any of those three in my eyes I'd I'd take it and then if there's a, a difference in money that we have to pay then I think we need to pay it because I think he is someone who would completely transform our midfield absolutely and also you know He's got the best name in football. He's got the best last name in football, Tom. Imagine Martin Tyler screaming that party. I, I can. I'm not going to do it because I won't do it justice. His name is Party. It's everything you could want in a player. I'm also excited because he also wears Thomas on his shirt. So this is a great excuse for me to buy a shirt that says Thomas. My goodness, it's everything you could ever want. We need this to happen. <laughs> so. Thomas Party, if you are listening to the Boys in Red and White podcast... <laughs> if you're one of our down. eight listeners... Yeah, if you're one of our eight listeners, don't let us down. Please come and sign for the Arsenal. Controla muy bien Coque, que bien la paró con el empeine, le puede pegar y le pega a la pelota adentro. Okay, so the third player we're going to look at, and I'm sure I'm going to pronounce this wrong. Uh, so if you are one of our eight listeners and you speak uh, Portuguese, then please do correct me. But we're going to talk about uh, Lille's centre-back, Gabriel Margalas. <laughs> ah, you mean Gabriel dos Santos Magalhães? <laughs> <laughs> that is who I mean. Um, um now he's someone that I, I'll be honest I don't know a lot about I don't watch a lot of French football uh, the statistics I've read about him look very impressive the one I the thing I find hard to believe about this deal is because we already have seven or eight centre backs and the idea that we get another one in before we've got rid of anyone uh, seems a, a little a little bit preemptive and a little bit not likely in my eyes I, I would 
unless we go full Saliba and a buy and a loan back. I, I don't know anything about him other than I read three things. Brazilian, 22, six foot three. For me, I love all of those things altogether. When we're talking about sort of squad building for the future, you know, if he can come in and make an immediate difference, fantastic. I don't love our centre-backs. We've discussed that at great length. But if he is one for the future, great. I, I do think we might buy before we sell. I, I do think whatever happens, we will level it out, even if we have to, to loan out a few players. I, I can't believe there won't be a, a host of outgoings if he comes in. But I do believe if he comes in, it's with a plan. When you think about where modern football's going, modern football, what on earth do I sound like? When you think where football's going, if you think, you, you picture someone like Bellerin, right back, modern day fullback, uh, Saliba plays off both feet, great passing, six foot three, this guy, probably the same, uh, and Kieran Tierney, left back. That is a back four that you could have for 10 years. Um, and that excites me quite a bit. But, I know nothing about him other than his his name, which I pronounced perfectly. You did. Excellent stuff. Excellent stuff. Uh, okay, next one is uh, Philippe Coutinho. Now, the, the, the problem I have with this, Tom, is that the next person on this list, it's an either or for me. So I would really like Philippe Coutinho. I can picture him from the left. I can. He would add so much creativity. He gives us so much that we do not have. Uh, again, he's a flair player. He's a pretty hard-working player, I think, from what you've seen. I think we're starting to go a bit too Brazilian, um, despite what I just said about how much you like that. He's such an exciting player. He gets he gets you on the edge of your seat. What's not to love? I also like a player that's played in the Premier League. I think that always adds something, particularly a flair player in the final third. He knows what it takes. He's not going to be shocked when he gets kicked all over the place, you know, when he goes up north, for example. So, for me, I'm all in on this deal. However, if it's a loan, it's another stopgap. I know everything I've just said in this podcast about short-termism. This one's a little bit too short-term for me because if he comes in on loan and lights it up, he does not play at Arsenal in the following season. And I would rather see someone who will at least give us a bit more continuity. Okay, so that leads us on to the final one. And that is Wilfred Zaha, who in the last... Uh, I saw on Twitter yesterday... That I think his uh, his agency that represents him uh, were with him on some sort of night in a in a in a nightclub or something, and it, in the background illuminated on an LED board it said Zaha to Arsenal, and there were a number of I think it was either Snapchat or Instagram uh, posts where it was essentially it seemed putting pressure on Arsenal to try and get a deal across. This guy is absolutely desperate to play for Arsenal. He was desperate last year, and I'm sure he was absolutely gutted that that deal never never materialised because I think there was there was legitimate interest from Arsenal, but there just wasn't a deal to be agreed. Now it seems a year down the line, the figure that Crystal Palace want for Wilfred Zaha is significantly less than it was last year. I've seen a few suggestions of around thirty million, and it's one that I really like Zaha, but I do agree with you about the whole. We, we're not going to sign Coutinho and Zaha. I think if you could get one or the other, I think it would make sense. But Coutinho on a loan, like you said, short-term business. Zaha is someone that would be more long-term. Uh, but again, the only way I see that happening is a loan with an obligation to buy, really. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I would prefer Zaha. I think Coutinho is more exciting. Coutinho is more exciting as a player. But I think Zaha wants... There's not many players who are desperate to play for, for the Arsenal 
you know, there's some players who come, he knows what it's about. He's a Londoner. I know he's from the Ivory Coast, of course, but he knows what it's about. You can tell. And I sort of like that he's that South London throwback to a bygone era. He's a fantastic player. We've seen it firsthand. He's destroyed us a couple of times. He gives you that bit of magic in the final third you don't have. Having said that, he had a disastrous season. So I'm saying all of this based on two seasons ago and three seasons ago because his last year's numbers were really poor. But I think that's because his head was out the game. But you just never know. The only issue I have with Zaha is if he doesn't go to Arsenal, he doesn't go to another top club. He goes to Everton. And that's that alarms me a bit. I think I said to you a few weeks ago about him that I, I, I could... I could see us going for him and I could see us getting him because I don't think there is a bigger club than us that would take him. And I think that's maybe a testament about the level we're at at the moment. Um, however, if you said to me we would start next season with a front three of Zaha, Aubameyang and Pepe, I'd be pretty excited about that. For sure. Like, that's really exciting. However, if I throw in Coutinho on the left as well, I'm still pretty excited. And it just gives the whole either of them, the fact it's... Look, we hope it's one or the other. And then you've got Willian coming off the bench. For me, that's suddenly you've got depth. We're going to need a lot of depth this year if we're to compete in the Europa League and do anything in the Premier League. I'm more interested in getting Zaha because also if he takes off at us in a couple of years, I do think you get a bigger team going for him um, and splashing the cash. I think we can probably get a deal a little bit lower based on absolutely nothing. I just think he wants out so desperately. And I think he'll come with something to prove. And I like that a lot as well. I also think, um, I don't like this normally in football, but I think he's at a point where he would do anything to force a move as well. So I think there's a lot of pressure we could put on from different different angles for, for a player like that. But I absolutely agree. If he doesn't come to us, I think he goes somewhere like Everton. Okay, I think we've covered, those are probably the five main transfer rumours in terms of incomings that have been around for the last last few days. Um, what we'll do very, very quickly is just look at uh, a couple of potential outgoings. Now, we have covered these in previous podcasts, but there's one specifically that I did want to look at today. The one I want to look at today is Ainsley Maitland-Niles because he's been linked with a move away and has reportedly been told that he's free to leave if if they can find a, a suitable buyer for him. Now, what strikes me with that statement is we've seen something similar with a number of Arsenal first-team players over the last week. And I think this is a case of Arsenal basically presenting a number of players to other clubs to say, look, these guys are available, and maybe seeing who bites for who. Because realistically, there must be a preference about which players we are moving on. And I don't believe that Ainsley Maitland-Niles would be high on that list if there was a choice. But this is going to be a case of needing to balance the books. And he is someone who we might be able to get a fairly decent fee for. So I can see why he's on that list, because he isn't an automatic starter at the moment. But if you look at his versatility, I really, really am not comfortable with, with losing him. I really don't want to lose him. I think if you look at the cup final performance, you've got to look at that more than you look at anything else, because that's his ceiling or, or that's, a, you know, that's perhaps an exemplar of what he could produce, given the right coaching in the right system. He could be, if we get rid of Kolasinac, I don't think you need another left-back. You've got one ready-made there who can fill in as and when. Um, I would hate to lose him. I don't know if you saw who he was linked with. I did. And in my head, I'm just like, well, why on earth would Arsenal ever humour the idea of dealing with them? 
um, and that made me scared, to be honest. But I'm with you. I want to keep him. However, would I turn down 30, 40 million, you know, even, well, maybe 20, 30 million from, from an Everton? You know, Everton are doing really well this transfer window out of us. Um, no, I wouldn't. You know, I'd swap him for Zaha plus 10, you know. So there is a, there is a reality to the situation as well. I saw an interesting suggestion that Crystal Palace might be interested in Rob Holding. Mm. So there might be a little bit of wiggle room in terms of a swap plus money for Zaha if we were interested. I think that would probably be a good one, even if it was a case of letting him go on loan. Uh, another one which I think might help that could help that deal is I think Reese Nelson is someone who could do with a loan in the Premier League. And if you could say, okay, maybe you take Rob Holding permanently, but someone like Reese Nelson, maybe you take him on loan for a year and then we'll we'll take Zaha off your hands. Yeah, yeah, I like it. I like it. Look, I think there's it's certainly going to be a, we hope it's going to be a creative market. And I think we've got some solutions that can help other clubs, which is which is what I'm holding on to. Uh, the, the only other two that I had written down for, for the time in, there's loads we could talk about. But they were Lacazette and Torreira. Now, we've touched on those previously. And I think those are probably the two most high-profile players we have that we would probably listen to offers for. And previously, I think we've said we think one of them might go to try and raise funds. But I do think what will happen is we will sign players before we sell um, to make sure we've got players in. And then once we do have them in, I think one of those will potentially go. Yeah, I don't really have too much more to add. I, th- I think you're right. I think there's a possibility either of them could be involved in a swap deal. As we've said before, the FA Cup has changed things, but I'm not really, I'm not too bothered about several players and those two fall into that category. Okay, now we're going to move on to the section of the podcast where we discuss some of our favourite goals associated with a specific Arsenal shirt. Now, this week we are looking at the 2012-2013 away shirt, which consisted of black and purple horizontal stripes. Uh, It was a shirt that was worn on surprisingly few occasions, considering it was actually our away kit. Um, And I think that's because it just clashed with so many other teams. So we ended up using our third kit a lot that year. Uh, now, yesterday, when Andre and I shared our three goals with one another, we actually had the exact same list, which is unprecedented, but they were the exact same list in the exact same order. So we've had to have a conversation and we've been creative with this one to try and uh, come up with some alternative goals. So just bear in mind, the three that I'm going to give now are also what Andre's original three were, but he has changed his original three to accommodate my original three. Yeah, very uh, very generous of me. I'll, I'm looking forward to cashing that chip in. Yeah, at another time, you, you, you've, got, you've got one in the bank, so don't worry about it. Okay, so the first selection that I've gone for, uh, and obviously Andre went for as well, was actually the first competitive goal that was scored in this shirt. And that was Lucas Podolski versus Liverpool. Uh, it was a massive goal as we went into the game on the back of two 0-0 draws to start the season uh, against Sunderland and Stoke City. Having just lost Robin Van Persie to Manchester United, there was a real concern as to how Arsenal were going to score goals. But in that game, we really saw what Santi Cazorla and Lucas Podolski could bring to this Arsenal side. Uh, it was brilliant play by Santi Cazorla to 
travel with the ball and then knock the ball into the path of Lucas Podolski. And then he used, obviously, his left foot, as he always does, to hammer Arsenal into the lead. Uh, when the goal went in, you could see the relief etched across the face of all the players. And it, it, it's a goal that, as soon as I think about that kit, that's the goal I think of. Because that really, really kick-started our season. Up until then, we had chances to win both of the previous games. We did not take them. And it was a real concern about how the, the whole season was going to pan out. Ultimately, it wasn't an overly successful season. But it was a year where you could see us developing into a team that wasn't as reliant on one person like we were when Robin Van Persie was there. And I think that leads quite nicely onto Andres. Yeah, so my... my um... Here comes the theme of the week. Uh, my, uh, my, mine was the Cazorla goal in this game. So he joined that summer and at, with Podolski and with Giroud, I think, were the notable signings. Santi Cazorla, I could make this an ode to Santi Cazorla, but really I think it was just about him cementing a victory at Anfield. Winning at Anfield is always special. I think it holds a particular place in my heart. I mean, Arsenal fans over the years have been spoiled with wins at Anfield we've also been equally punished for those but this really cemented quite a memorable win at Anfield um, especially as they were going to be one of our main competitors you know at the time you think you're going to be title contenders and not many teams win the league without winning at Anfield so it, it was a not much I, I don't really know it's a goalkeeping error I can't wax lyrical about the the strike itself Cazorla absolute power off his left foot I don't know what Rayner's doing, slaps it into the net. It, it did remind me a bit of the Van Persie goal the season before as well, because that was went in at the near post as well. And really, it was just seeing those Arsenal fans go off at that corner uh, that was the most exciting thing about that one, I think. Absolutely. And I don't think we can talk about that game uh, without also commenting quickly on the performance of Abu Diaby. And he was always a player that it made me really sad because you, if had it not been the misfortune with his injuries, I'm convinced he could have been an Arsenal great. And that game was probably the finest he had in an Arsenal shirt as he basically ran the entire midfield on his own. He was incredible. He was incredible. For me, that's one of our... Uh last memorable midfield solo performances of a player of that type and, and I guess why why I'm excited about party I suppose but he was phenomenal that day the compilation from Abu Dhabi at Anfield is one of the finest uh, midfield displays you'll see it's well worth a watch on YouTube so if you've not seen it I will post it on our Facebook group um, later on so please do watch it because it is worth it's definitely worth it Andre would you like to tell us about your second goal this is the first goal, I believe, in a loss we've done. Um, again, you mentioned at the start, we didn't wear this kit a lot. Uh, Vermaelen at Bradford, I believe a 90th minute equaliser to prevent what would have been a rather embarrassing defeat to Bradford, which we did eventually complete in uh, after penalties. It's the, first, <laughs> <laughs> it's the first time I remember us losing to a lower league club. Um it's actually a bit of a story about where I watched this game. I watched it in 12 pins. What a strange decision, of course, because why would you go to 12 pins for a League Cup game? I was I just moved into a new, a new flat and I was having Sky installed. So I made such a point. I rushed home to get down to 12 pins somewhere I would watch um, Arsenal v Bradford. And there was only a handful of Arsenal fans. It was such an embarrassing performance. That was famed for the Jovino miss 
um, which haunted him throughout his Arsenal career. It was a highly embarrassing day. But I have to say, uh, <laughs> this did remind me of that kit and his back post header. Um, but really, the miss came to my mind more than the goal. That 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 was after the Podolski goal. That was the first thing that popped into my head was the Giovini miss. So thank you for allowing us to all relive that moment. <laughs> Pleasure. I also was not aware that you watched that in 12 pins. So that's also made me very happy. <laughs> Okay, so my second choice is a slightly better goal than the one you've just described, and it's not a loss to a lower league opponent. It is Kieran Gibbs' stunning volley against Swansea in the FA Cup. Now, ultimately, that went to a replay, uh, so it wasn't a successful outing in itself, uh, but we were a goal behind, and then we turned it around with goals from Lucas Podolski and then a, this stunning goal from, from Kieran Gibbs. The reason why I love this goal is I love a goal by a left back. I love a lofted one-two and I love a volley into the top corner. And this goal had all three of those combined. And what made it even more special is the fact that it was scored by a proper Arsenal lad who had come through the academy at Hayland and Arsenal were attacking the end where all the supporters were located. And Kieran Gibbs scores that goal, runs into the crowd and that's always a surefire way to get to my heart. Yeah, I... I remember I watched this game again out and about um, and electric finish but also it was, we really struggled with Swansea the, and we were always compared to them because they kept the ball and I created a real dislike of Swansea which um, I know will come out <laughs> we'll talk about a couple of our trips there um, <laughs> down the line but uh, when he leathered that in it was fantastic but also it sort of it put us ahead and it felt like we finally broke that particular sort of hoodoo they had over us I know they equalized Danny Graham but interestingly we did win there that season but we wore our home shirt bizarre I never understand these things um that was a fantastic strike I thought Podolski's goal in that um game as well was a one of his classic sort of pure power finishes that we loved him for but yeah a fantastic goal so um Tom I I guess do you want to carry on go go for your third I will carry on and my final selection, again, it's an ultimately a goal that didn't really count for much, but it's still one that gave me immense joy. And it was Olivier Giroud away to Bayern Munich that year. And the tie was seemingly over after the first leg, after we'd lost 3-1 at home. But just three minutes into the second leg, it all seemed possible again because Giroud smashed in from close range uh, to give Arsenal an unlikely lifeline. Uh, Walcott got the ball on the right, fizzed it across the six-yard box and there Giroud was at the back post just to tap the ball into an unguarded net. And I think this kind of summarises what I love about football because anything seems possible. It doesn't matter how much you're losing by or how much the odds are stacked against you. Every single game you go in with those a little glimmer of hope and when you get a moment like that, that's something that really, really ignites that hope and makes it almost unbearable because you truly believe that you're going to get back into that game or you're going to win that game. And that was certainly one of those moments for me. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that was so early on that goal as well. But you're right. It is. And ultimately, it was the hope that killed us. Um, my, my, my final goal is also from that game. The, the Koscielny header, just to sort of add to the sort of crescendo of excitement that was happening in that game. Because we never felt like we could win these games, especially losing 3-1 at home. That was such an insipid performance and it was everything we oh, frustrated you at the time. But when we got back into it, 
Koscielny had the knack of doing that at the right moment, as would prove in the, the FA Cup final. I think his most important goal for us, along with the one away at Newcastle. But this one felt at the time really important. I mean, interestingly, this performance set us on our way for a really strong finish to the end of the season. It wasn't much of a goal again, but it was just he had the knack to do that. And Arsenal at that time did give you the hope and the belief that we would we would finally conquer one of these and I really thought that was going to be it but but alas not to be yeah it was it was unfortunate but we went through obviously a period of those nearly comebacks didn't we the the year before was uh the 3-0 at home to uh, AC Milan when we almost overturned the 4-0 that we lost for in the first leg the year after was that Monaco the year after yes yes it was and obviously that was pretty disastrous we thought we were going to do it again and we didn't but like, like I said, it's the, it's the hope that kills you. It really, really is. <laughs> what a lovely note to end on. <laughs> that about wraps up another episode of the Boys in Red and White podcast. Thank you very much to everyone that has listened and to everyone who has liked and shared our page on Facebook. If you would like to get in contact with us, you can talk to us via Facebook, which is at the Boys in Red and White. Or if you'd like to speak to us via Twitter, you can contact me via at TommyPD89. Or you can contact me uh, at Andre underscore Grayson. And if you'd like some light reading, then you can look at my blog, which is www.theboysinredandwhite.blogspot.com. Thank you very much for listening again, and we'll be back next week with another podcast. Thanks, guys.